You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley and Darcy Fournier. Leslie Gould is a Christie Award-winning and number one best-selling author of over 40 novels, including four Lancaster County Amish series. She holds a bachelor's degree in history and an MFA in creative writing. She enjoys church history, research trips, and hiking in the Pacific Northwest. She and her husband lived in Portland, Oregon, and have four adult children and one grandchild. Leslie Gold, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you. I'm so glad you're joining us today. To start out with something fun, in all your hikes in the Pacific Northwest, what was the funniest or maybe most interesting experience you've had? Okay, this is a story that's about the most interesting, definitely not the funniest, although in all situations, there was a lot of comedy, you know, involved too. But I have to start out by saying that um, my husband is now retired, but he was in the Army Reserve for 30 years. And he retired as a colonel in a medical unit, and he commanded a field hospital in Afghanistan. And over and over, we come across situations where he rescue someone like just recently we were on a walk in our neighborhood and someone coming towards us had a seizure you know he immediately helped the guy I called 911 um, a year ago we were downtown in Portland on the waterfront and a family was being attacked um, and my husband stepped in and stopped the attack and you know so so this is just kind of par for for us um, and this was actually on a backpacking trip not a hike but we were trying to get into Linton Meadows, and this happened years and years and years ago. And I honestly don't go backpacking anymore. I just go hiking. <laughs> but this was backpacking, and we were in the, the Three Sisters Wilderness in the Cascade mm-hmm. Mountains. And we were trying to get to a place called Linton Meadows, but there was too much snow. So we had to set up camp on this plateau. And we were just hanging out at our camp, and this guy stumbled into camp with his beautiful Irish setter. And he said, could one of you cut this thing off my face? And that thing was part of his lip. He'd fallen on the husband, which is a smaller mountain in the area. His dog tripped him. He fell face down, down the shale side, hurt his leg, cut up his face, had, you know, cuts all over his hands and his arms. And so my husband's a nurse. There was another nurse in our group who had been in the army too. And there was a nurse practitioner. So someone went up and got actually got cell service, which we weren't supposed to be able to get. Um, my husband and the other two medical people went to work on the guy. Pretty soon, forest rangers arrived and then a life flight helicopter. So we took the dog for the night and then uh, backpacked out the next morning, got the guy's pickup, drove down to St. Charles in Bend and reunited with him. And we kept in touch with him for years. But uh, now we've kind of lost touch with him. Like we, you know, just never found him on social media or anything. But it was definitely one of those times, uh, wow, you know, it's a good thing there was so much snow and we didn't get into Linton Meadows and that we were exactly where we were at at that time. So we've had lots of really interesting hikes and backpacking trips, but that was definitely the most interesting. Wow. Yes, you ended with a life flight in the snow. Yes, I think that had to be the most interesting. But 
it's so cool how God uses your husband's experiences now that he's over here. Yeah. So you have been writing for quite a few years and published over 40 novels. How has your writing process changed and developed over your career? Yeah, you know, it's definitely changed um, since my first book was published in um, 2003. I probably figured out, started to figure out an effective uh, process about five books in, which of course I tweak all the time and I mix it up just, you know, so things don't get dull and boring. But I do quite a bit of pre-planning and I work out my story arcs. I work out the character arcs for all of my main characters. I do a good chunk of research to make sure that my plot points work and all of that and that my timeline is correct. Um, And then I always write an outline and it's usually about 15 pages and I write it chapter by chapter by chapter. And if I didn't do that, I'm afraid I would either not make my deadlines or even (laughs) um, have more anxiety as I reach my deadlines than I do. So I found that to be super effective. And then once the outline is done, I just start writing and I continue to do more research, clear into my rewrites. And like, even after it's too late to change anything in the book, I keep researching, I think just to torment myself. But I used to be able to write for like eight hours straight, like a decade ago, and I could write 10,000 words in a day. One day I wrote 15,000 words in a day. Mm -hmm. And I really can't do that anymore. I had my 60th birthday this year. So I don't know if this is age related or some kind of burnout. But now what I try to do is write in 90 minute chunks. Um, So I'll write for 90 minutes, and then I'll do, you know, social media, marketing, emails, that sort of thing. And then I'll set aside another chunk. And as I'm getting close to deadline, I really try to do three of those chunks a day, you know, just to keep my word count going. Well, that sounds like a pretty effective way of breaking up all the duties, because I know you said checking email. That's probably my least favorite thing to do. (laughs) And now we have social media and platforms and podcasting and But yeah, breaking it up. And I know lists come in really handy, too. And, you know, I have multiple calendars going at once. I have my phone calendar, a hard copy calendar. I'm so paranoid about missing or forgetting something. And I think it's cool that your process has developed over the years because uh, we change a little bit as as life changes. So that's that's actually really encouraging that you know, sometimes things that have been working for you may not always, but that's okay. You just find a new process. Yeah. And you know, one thing that hasn't changed, it's remained a very messy process. Like after I wrote my first book that was published, I thought, oh, now I know how to do it. The next one will be so easy. It, it never gets easy. It, it's always messy. It's always a process. You know, it never just happens. You know, it's, it's just really work. It's very enjoyable work, but it's definitely work. Well, with four series of books set in Lancaster County, you have no doubt thoroughly researched the Amish community. So what do you think are the most common misconceptions that we Englishers have about the Amish people? Yeah, you know, I I think one of the big ones is that um, we, you know, we know that they strive to live separately from the world. And sometimes we think we don't have anything in common with them, that they're so separate that our lives are very, very different. And, you know, that's not true at all, not now, uh, nor in the past. 
Um, I have an Amish friend that I met about 10 years ago, and at the time we both had tweens and teens, and I was driving my girls to orthodontist appointments in my minivan, and she was driving hers in her buggy, and uh, she was planting a big garden, and I was planting a little garden, and we both had home births with midwives, so like we had, you know, so much in common, so much to talk about. You know, we both had um, you know, children in late teens, early young adult, and, you know, talking about what we hoped for them. And it was both, you know, just that their faith would grow stronger and that they would keep the faith. So, you know, so much in common. And now if I saw her, you know, I know we would be talking about our adult um, children, which I did see her a few years ago, and we were, and now it would be about our grandchildren, you know, so, uh, you know, really, we have a lot more in common than we don't. And then so do our histories, like the Amish dude, you know, try to stay separate from the world, but every national and world event has affected their ancestors, just as those events have affected our ancestors. And that's what I really love about writing the dual time Amish stories with the historical thread and the contemporary thread. I just really enjoy exploring what was it like for the Amish during the Revolutionary War, during the Civil War, during World War One, you know, during the pandemic of 1918. And then now I've been doing what was it like pre-World War II, during World War II, and after World War II. So, the, you know, Amish men in the Revolutionary War and Civil War, they either had to pay a fee not to fight, or sometimes they had to leave the country. You know, several groups and families immigrated to Canada, so they didn't have to fight in those wars. You know, which was really ironic because one of the big draws of coming to the New World, to America in the first place, starting with William Penn and the land grant that he gave to Anabaptists, was that they wouldn't have to serve in the military. So that changed. And then during World War II, Anabaptists were treated horribly. Um, some were forced to serve. Some, you know, were uh, drafted and then they refused to serve. They were treated just horribly. And a couple of them died from exposure. They were treated so badly. So by World War II, the Anabaptists had worked with the U.S. military to start a conscientious objector program. Um, so finally, Anabaptist men were able to work in civilian jobs, like as orderlies in hospitals and for the Forest Service. But those, you know, all of those young men and their families were affected by those national and worldwide events which I just find really fascinating, you know, that those are such markers in anybody's family history, and they were for the. Wow, and we don't necessarily hear about theirs as much, but yeah, we we have at least in common with them that it was a, an important event in our histories, even though it may have affected us differently. That's That's cool to think about. Yeah, that is neat. Now, Leslie, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? You know, this is something that God's really uh, been laying on my heart and that I've just you felt really impacted by lately. And, you know, might be part of the, you know, pandemic, post-pandemic, you know, and just really valuing relationships and that sort of thing. But I just really want readers to know how much I appreciate them and how dependent I am on them. You know, I'd be publishing a single word without them. You know, they're such an integral part of this entire process. And getting to know them at reader events, like the last one I went to was in 
Florida last February. And, you know, it was just an incredible time. And I felt like I made so many new friends, you know, from that. Uh, And I can't wait until my next, you know, reader event where, you know, we'll really spend a good chunk of time together and not just a quick, you know, book signing, which those are fun too. Um, But, you know, it's not just that they buy my books, which, you know, that's absolutely wonderful and amazing and essential to my survival as a writer. But, you know, they really become my friends, which um, we all, you know, really need. Um, and, And that's, you know, really a credit to social media. It's just this venue where you really, you know, can get to know people and share things about your life and pray for each other and, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I've just, you know, really been thinking about my readers a lot lately and, you know, just really how important they are to me. Yeah. I am so glad that we are able to connect more with reader events now that things have calmed down a little bit and that, you know, it's safer. So, yeah, it's kind of feels like the beginning of a new season. Well, let's dive into talking about your latest release, A Brighter Dawn, which is book one in your new Amish Memories series. Ivy Zimmerman is successfully navigating her life as a young Mennonite woman, one generation removed from her parents' Old Order Amish upbringing. But when her parents are killed in a tragic accident, Ivy's way of life is upended. As she deals with her grief, her younger sister's needs, the relationship with her boyfriend, and her daughter and mommy's strict rules, Ivy finds solace in both an upcoming trip to Germany for an international Mennonite youth gathering and in her great-great-aunt's story about Claire Simons, another young woman who visited Germany in the late 1930s. As Ivy grows suspicious that her parents' deaths weren't, in fact, an accident, she gains courage from what she learns of Claire's time in pre-World War II Germany. With the encouragement and inspiration of the women who have gone before her, Ivy seeks justice for her parents, her sisters, and herself. So a Mennonite girl who suddenly has to live with her Amish grandparents and a historical thread about another Mennonite girl in pre-World War II Germany, this sounds fascinating. And A Brighter Dawn is book one in your new Amish memory series. Can you share how the books are connected and your inspiration for the series? Yes, um, Brighter Dawn is book one in the Amish Memory series. And my kernel of inspiration came from when I was researching another project and came across the fact that the majority of Mennonites in Germany before World War II and during supported Hitler fascism and the Nazis. So my story question for the historical thread of this book became, why would the Mennonites support Hitler? And as I, you know, went through, did the research, all of that, you know, it really came down to they supported Hitler out of fear of something worse. And that, you know, really shaped uh, their responses, and it empowered Hitler and the Nazis, which is just tragic. And, you know, the other main churches in Germany supported Hitler, too, for some of the same reasons. So Rosine, who is Amish in the contemporary thread, um, and the series has a a mix of both Amish and Mennonite characters who all belong to the same family. She tells the historical story of Claire, who was her oldest sister and also the great-grandmother of the contemporary protagonist, Ivy. Um, So Rosine is the character 
who connects the historical and contemporary threads together in A Brighter Dawn and also throughout the entire series. And memories is the connecting theme. In the historical threads, memories from the past shape the stories and have also helped you know, shape the present, like in all families. <laughs> you know, we're totally dependent on those histories for who we are. And in the contemporary thread, lost memories, suppressed memories, and distorted memories shape the stories and also the elements of mystery in those in all three books. Wow, this sounds fascinating. It was fascinating to research, really fascinating. And Ivy experiences a pretty intense cultural shift when she goes from being raised Mennonite to live with her old order Amish grandparents. So can you share a little bit about the differences between Mennonite and Amish? Yes. So the differences go back (laughs) to the 1500s and the Reformation. So, you know, all sorts of things were happening during the Reformation. And there were Anabaptist groups that were starting. And some that started, you know, before the Reformation, Um, there was the Swiss Brethren group. Then there was the Mennonites, who Minnow Simons, who was a Catholic priest, started in the Netherlands. And eventually the Swiss Brethren, some of them became Mennonites. But in the late 1600s, there was a man named Jacob Ammons, who lived in the Alps of Switzerland, and actually in the same area that my great-grandparents came from. So I'm just really fascinated by his story and the story of what was happening in the late 1600s, and I'd love to write about that someday. But he he felt like kind of the, the Anabaptist group there was slipping, that they weren't shunning people when they didn't follow you know, the rules of the sect. So he broke away with a group that was then called the Amish. And he ended up having to flee to Alsace-Lorraine, the area that was sometimes French and sometimes German, just because in Switzerland, everybody had to be baptized into the church because that was how they collected their taxes. So Anabaptists believed in being baptized as adults, and that's where the name Anabaptists came from. So they refused to baptize their infants. So then the the state government, the Swiss government, you know, hunted them down to discourage people from joining them. And, you know, some some people were were executed for their Anabaptist faith. So then uh, lots of Mennonite and Amish immigrated in the 1700s to the New World, so early 1700s. Uh, And there were, you know, Mennonite groups and Amish groups. And just as things evolved, you know, some Mennonite groups became less and less conservative. Um, and, you know, now there's just a whole spectrum of different groups. And same with the Amish. There are some Amish that use electricity, some that have very plain cars, you know, where there are groups in Indiana that still use um, outhouses and have a water pump out in their backyard instead of having, you know, water piped into the house. And I'm certainly no expert on this, um, even though I've <laughs> been researching it for you know about 12 years. But um, just yeah, it's really nuanced, and lots of different groups, you know, under the umbrella of Anabaptist, and then under the umbrellas of Mennonite and Amish. Wow, that's interesting. And things do tend to kind of develop over time. I heard once that like Baptists alone have a hundred or hundred plus different types of Baptist. Yeah, we're very particular as humans, aren't we? <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Now, can you tell us a little bit about the historical events and Claire's experience in the historical part of this novel? Yes, yeah. Um, So Claire is the main character in the historical thread. She's Mennonite, lives in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And in 1937, she travels to Germany with her German uncle and her cousin, who are also Mennonite. And they've been in the U.S. and Canada visiting and working with uh, Mennonite refugees, mostly who had traveled from Ukraine to the U.S. and Canada after Stalin did forced famines in Ukraine and starved out whole groups of Mennonites. There were silos of food you know, within eyesight, and he wouldn't allow them to access any of that food because he wanted to collectivize the farms. So he wanted to force them, you know, off their farms. So it was just a horrible time for Mennonites. So anyway, the the uncle Joseph is involved in kind of caring for Mennonites worldwide. So she goes back to Germany with them, just intending to go for a visit. And then she stays to run the household because her aunt died a few years before and care for her younger cousins who have seizures and are part of a Nazi study. So you kind of imagine where that's going. Of course, in 1937, they didn't realize where it was going. But slowly, Claire does realize that these Nazi policies are being enacted both towards their Jewish neighbors, people, Jewish people in their neighborhood, and also to the disabled, including her cousins. Yet her uncle and her cousin, her age, along with members of their church, continue to support Hitler. So she has to figure out how to stand up to the atrocities she knows about while doing her best not to draw attention to her plan. So there's, you know, the stakes are high. You know, there's a lot of conflict. You know, a lot of um, her beliefs are at stake, too. How can she stand up for what's right? Um, you know, without blowing everything. Exactly. When, you know, she's even going to have to work in opposition to what, you know, her family is is working for. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wow. That's kind of intense. But I mean, all World War II stories are. But this sounds like a really good story. Yeah. World War II stories are so intense because the stakes are so high, you know, and, and we know what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well... What are you working on next with your writing? Yeah, okay, so I'm in the middle of rewrites for the second book in the Amish Memories series, and it's called This Passing Hour. And um, the historical thread takes place in the spring of 1945 on the Mennonite Dairy in Lancaster County that Rosine's parents own, where German POWs are working and doing all they can to sabotage the farm and collaborate with a German spy operating in the vicinity. So the contemporary thread then takes place on the same farm that is now owned by Rosine's Amish nephew. And his granddaughter, Brenna, who's Ivy's sister, tries to discover who the spy was in 1945, if she or he was one of her ancestors and who the spy was working with, Mm -hmm. besides the German POWs all those years ago. Um, And she's also trying to solve a contemporary threat to the family property, too. So at this point, I'm just really, really looking forward to finishing the rewrites. And then the the book will be available to readers in early 2024. Wow. How exciting. I'm so happy for you. Yeah. Right now, I'm at that point of, oh, I hope this all comes together. (laughs) But I know it well. (laughs) Yes. And for our listeners, Leslie has 
is offering a copy of A Brighter Dawn. To enter the giveaway, just go to our website, historicalbookworm.com. You can click on the giveaways page and you'll find it there. And I also have a direct link in uh, the show notes for this episode. So Leslie, where can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, um, go to lesliegould.com. It has a sign up for my newsletter where where you'll get all of my, you know, breaking news. (laughs) And it has all my social media links, my blog and my list of books too. So lesliegould.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been fun chatting with you. Oh, thank you, Kylie and Darcy. This has just really been delightful. Thanks. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.